In the previous episode of Claremont, the podcast, a third young woman had vanished in March 1997 before her partially closed body was found dumped in scrub almost three weeks later. A preliminary investigation of the scene reveals a body to be that of a female and it appears to be that of Kira Glennon. And a year later, news broke that the macro task force hunting a serial killer had a significant suspect in their sights. Few questions. Are you the serial killer? No. Are you innocent? Yes. Seemingly shy and socially awkward public servant Lance Williams was under intense scrutiny from police after being taken in for 15 hours of questioning and from the media who knew who he was and where he lived. What about the, the, the night Jane disappeared in June? What were you doing that night? June the 9th. Yeah, um, yeah I went out with my parents to um, a Chinese restaurant in Claremont. Welcome to episode three in the story of the Claremont serial killings, a podcast that backgrounds a period of time in Perth, Western Australia, when a predator stalked women after dark along a trendy suburbs nightlife strip and got away with three abductions and three murders for more than two decades. It was only in December of 2016 that a telecommunications technician called Bradley Robert Edwards was arrested and charged with killing Sarah Spears Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon and the rape of a 17-year-old in 1995 and the attack on an 18-year-old in 1988. He has pleaded not guilty to all charges and is due to stand trial in July. The discovery of Kira Glennon's body 50 kilometres north of Perth in an area which is now dotted with market gardens didn't lead to a breakthrough as detectives might have hoped. They had what was likely to be the killer's DNA, but no one to match it to. For reasons that remain unexplained to this day, the task force continued to focus on Lance Williams. His mother, Norma, was deeply concerned about the pressure on her son, but also displayed an acceptance of police going about their business when journalists knocked on her door in 1998. He says, I've had nothing to do with any of those murders. And we've told him and spoken to him and said, Lance, if you've had anything to do with it, tell us or confess. And the police said to him, all you can do now is confess to it. And he says, how can I confess to something if I haven't done anything? Have the police been here and searched his car in your house? They've taken his car on the very first night he was picked up in April. They've searched all of that and they searched all his unit and took all his clothes away and searched and, you know, did tests on them. They came here, they searched all of our house, searched all the grounds. They even, think- they even dug up the back patio because the um, uh, seismograph was, you know, making little beep beeps. And I said, you're wasting your time. And they said, no, we've got to do it. So they ripped it all up and they found nothing, just a few old nails and bits of tin from where we'd had extensions done to the back of the house 26 years ago. They got nothing on him. That's what they said. They got nothing on him. You know, they can't charge him because there's nothing to, no evidence. Why why have they targeted him, as far as you can see? Well, as I said, because he was caught just wandering around, uh, driving around the streets of Claremont because he used to see these women staggering around the place and he thought, you know, um, what had happened there, he was concerned for them and he used to, you know, sort of follow them to see where they were going, I suppose, and, and that's just what he told us. And I, I said to him, well, you should have just kept out of it and not 
you know, bothered about it. Just, just come home and... What did they say? What were some of the things they said to him? Oh, look, I... But how they treated him, you said they treated yeah. him. Well, when he was being interviewed there for 12 hours, you know, that um, early hours of the Sunday morning, they said, oh, you know, you're the one, you did it, and we'll be looking over your shoulder, you won't... We'll get you, and um, no cl social club will accept you, you know, as if they just want to ruin him, you know, ruin his whole life. And he's always been a very reserved, you know, person, done nothing wrong. When the 1998 publicity about a suspect in the Claremont serial killings case began to unfold, Dennis Glennon, the father of Kira, was concerned and made that clear to the media. Up to now, the media, all facts, facets of it, have been, I think, very respectful to us, the family. They have been very responsible, very helpful in working with the, the Macro Task Force, and I think have achieved that fine balance of, you know, publishing uh, what is in the public interest and what they cannot be published. And I said, my God, uh, this morning, you know, this has crossed the line. So I had two reactions to it this morning because I am aware that uh, the uh, Macro Task Force have a number of people uh, that are of interest to them. They're conducting a number of searches, they're conducting interviews continuously, uh, and if uh, they are in fact, uh, uh, you know, have those people under surveillance, uh, what's going to happen now? That was my reaction. And understandably, he backed the task force looking for his daughter's killer. You know, the dedication that is there is 100%. Uh, the pressure that is on the Macro Tax Force internally, and I think from the community of Perth, right, both public and, and business, is enormous. And they, more than you know, anybody else, or as much as anybody else in the community, wants this thing solved and there is no diminution of effort. There is no cutting back in, in, in resources. I mean, I've had that from David Caper and I've had it from the Commissioner himself. That might have been the case, but even by January 26 of 2002, the sixth anniversary of the disappearance of the first victim, Sarah Spears, Lance Williams was still considered a suspect in the Claremont serial killings. And Seven News reporter Alison Fan who had worked on countless major crime and mystery stories over her long career, decided to cold call the public servant at his seaside apartment in Cottesloe, a stone's throw from Claremont. She wanted to know how the then 44-year-old could have absorbed all the police and public pressure, finger-pointing and innuendo. In 2002, you went and knocked on the door of the man that the police and a lot of people in Western Australia thought was the Claremont serial killer. I was amazing. He came to the door, invited us in. I was quite um, okay with everything that we asked and um, a, a very unusual guy. You don't get blown away like you do up the coast, though, here, do you? I'll just close yeah, it on a bit. Then I'll just leave for a moment. I'll just close it a bit because sometimes after uh, about three... Yeah, don't do it too much yeah. because uh, I'm going to lose all the light. Yeah. No, after about three, sometimes when that sun starts coming down oh, under yeah, the um, yeah. balcony there, yeah. it gets uh, pretty warm. Yeah, I've got enough here still. Yeah. Bet you sit down. It's six years since Sarah Spears disappeared and it, you've been sort of constantly watched for three to four years. Is your life, how has that affected your life? Is it becoming normal? You got used to it? Um, well, I mean, it's, um, it was sort of, 
not easy at first, you know, because um, I had people follow me to work and, and home again. And then um, on weekends when I was staying at my parents, they were, you know, always there on the weekend. And I didn't didn't really appreciate that because it sort of virtually um, kept me indoors most of the time because I just didn't like the idea of having to go out and having people following me, you know. So I virtually um, just kept at home uh, unless I was going to work. And that's when you stay with your parents, but you've been back in your own unit for... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been back here, um, you know, every year, but um, I just really uh, wanted to get away from um, being on my own, you know, so that's why I went back to my uh, parents' place. Is life um, normal pretty well for you? Um, well, I wouldn't say it's um, normal because, I mean, this this is still a subject which I am um, I think about a lot, you know, and um, it's not easy to escape from, so, um, I mean, it's, it's always with me, you know, but um, I can't really you know, just forget about it, you know, so um, I just sort of carry on the best I can. What are your thoughts about it? Um, well, I'm, I'm pleased that um, I'm sort of virtually, you know, left alone most of the time, as far as I know. I mean, I, I don't know what anyone's doing um, if I'm out on the road, you know. I mean, I, I just myself think it'd be pointless anyone sort of find me without me knowing, you know, just going to work and that, I mean, because they, they know my routine, I mean be pointless and wasting your time, you know, like they used to um, when I was going to work following me and that, but um, I virtually just don't go out um, on weekends now, I, you know, at night, because I just don't be bothered with any, anyone following me, you know. You don't care? Um, well, I just don't want to, I just don't want to um, be upset because um, a couple of times I was quite certain someone was following me. Um, uh, this, I mean, that hasn't happened probably now for, um, I think the last time I was aware of it was early last year. Um, I mean, since about May last year, I I just virtually haven't gone bothered going out on a Friday or Saturday night because I just don't want to be bothered getting upset over it. You know, if someone's if I notice someone following me, it just brings the whole thing back. You know, to what what it used to be like. You know, with um, when I was followed all the time, it just brings back that uneasy feeling. You know. When you, when you say you go out, what did you yeah. use, what's going out mean? Did you go out? Oh, no, well, I used to, um, I used to go out socially until um, uh, April 98, you know, when um, the police started following me and that. And, um, I mean, I, I joined a social club because I was sort of reluctant to get involved in um, something like that. But um, I think my, um, my mother especially was fairly keen for me to get involved with people. You know, and um, so I started going to a social club, and I was doing that quite often for about six months. And then um, when I started getting um, involved with that police uh, surveillance, it just stopped because I didn't want to, you know, be taking them to places where I'd, I'd be going. You know, I, I just I'd feel too uncomfortable. Do you, you, know? you lead a fairly lonely life then? You're um, a lonely well, yeah. Life. Well, yeah. I mean, I. Well, uh, with a reputation that. Um, that's, that's happened. You, would you find people reluctant to go out with you? Or? Well, it's more that I um, probably have, have made myself like that, you know. Um, but but I've been like that for a long time. Um, I mean, I virtually my my life's just been mainly um, working family, and you know, I mean, I see my parents every weekend virtually. I mean, myself, my younger brother go there um, every Sunday virtually, and. Uh, like today, because it was a holiday, I said, well, let's go out for a while and went to town and had lunch. And um, But apart from that, you know, work and, and family and, um, 
you know, it's virtually, not, I don't really have any other social life. I recall the time myself watching the interview and listening to it. He, he doesn't get angry. Now, most people would get angry about the fact that they're being accused of taking three young women and murdering them. But this guy had this calmness about him. Totally, almost robotic. His whole responses to everything was almost robotic, that he just answered what he thought. And um, when I asked him, why didn't he get a lawyer? He said, well, I did ring one once. But he said he kept, his only answer was, the police are doing their job. Well, I mean, I, I didn't really want to stir up any problems, you know, with um, things like trying to take some court action. Mm. I mean, I just didn't want to have any more pressure put on me because I thought if I try and stir up that sort of pr trouble, um, I mean, there's probably not a very good chance that someone would probably get granted um, uh, restraining order against yeah. the, you know, the police. Yeah. I mean, um, as the science said, it might be a, a, an ind against an individual, you might get some yeah. approval, but the police force as a whole, I mean, you yeah. can't really stop the police force and get, uh, investigating things, but um, I, I mean, I've just thought, well, I mean, what can I really do? Um, I mean, I've just, I've just been probably the unfortunate person. I mean, there have been yeah, others. Just the number one Claremont serial yeah, but, killer but, suspect? Well, yeah, but see, it's it's almost as though um, I'm not really, I don't know, it's, it's difficult to sort of describe it. Um, like, like from the outside looking in? Yeah, like even my mother, just because our family has sort of just never really been in any trouble like that, you know what I mean? Um, and for, for it to happen to me, it's, it's almost as though it's just, it's not really us, you know, it's um, someone else. Or, it's know. not happening. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Bad dream, huh? Well, yeah, well... Pretty long one. Yeah, but, um, you know, that's... I'm trying to... I'm, I'm trying to, I don't know, keep probably any further pressure on me by probably not getting out there and and if the police are doing surveillance still, I, I just don't want to get reminded all the time of the whole thing, you know, that it's still happening to me because, uh, you know, every time I'd, I'd see someone, um, you, you know, the same car behind me, I. You just brought back all the bad feelings I had, you know. Then Alison tried to hone in on one of the key reasons that detectives working on the macro task force took such an interest in Lance Williams after keeping him under surveillance as he drove around Claremont after dark. His explanation would have left anybody feeling a little uneasy. Because the police, are, it's quite open that they, they said that you were stopped after driving like 20, 30, yeah, 40, 50 yeah. times. Would that be, was that accurate? Oh, well, I mean, I think they used the term um, 30 times. But you see, that probably came about because um, I, was, I was actually driving past a person and then, and then driving, you know, into the distance and going back. Because um, at the time I was just... You know, I've said all this before. Um, I'd seen people walking around on their own in Claremont, and um, and that sort of was upsetting me a bit. I, I suppose I just overreacted to it, you know. And um, I mean, I it's not the sort of thing I I would normally do. I mean, as I said to um, the police, if it was like say Subiaco, which which I used to pass through sometimes on my way home or to the casino or something, um, just seeing people say walking around uh, near the hotel area, that would be. Um, to me, that would be just normal, but but what I saw was um, made me think. Well, that's not that's that behaviour is not correct, you know, for that sort of uh, area, and for what uh, the um, area had been known for, you know, as far as the uh, killings. And what know? about now? Do you still drive around Subiaco? No, well, I I do. Um, as I said, 
I, well, I drive through Cleon virtually every day because it's on my way home. I, I do my shopping there and... Um, and at night time at all? No, no, not really. I, I'd be lucky to sort of... Um, if, it, if it was dark, I'd very rarely be anywhere near there, you know, because um, I just don't want all that, you know, problem again, you know. Despite that strange behaviour, which included Lance Williams picking up police bait in the form of an undercover female officer, who he said stopped his car to ask about bus services to nearby Mosman Park, Alison Fan left the Cottesloe apartment on that day in 2002, convinced police had the wrong man. And she explained in no uncertain terms just how sure she was. I came away and one of the first things I did was ring... Uh, Dennis Glennon and say they've got the wrong guy. This guy is definitely odd. He's got some very strange personality disorders. He's also obsessive. He's almost like autistic in the way he was responding to things. I said, but I can't see that this is the guy. That I even went to the extent of speaking to an assistant police commissioner at the time and said, they've got the wrong guy. He agreed. He said they're using the wrong tactics. They're using tactics which the police commissioner believed in at the time, which was like a profiling thing that they got from the states. He said, it's not going to work here. They'll find that this guy has been around the whole time. He'll probably got form. He's probably got some sort of a record. And that's the guy they should be looking for. If, if it's him, then they've got the bodies yes. of two victims. Wouldn't they have the DNA by now? You would That's have, the thing I couldn't figure out, why it was taking them so long, years, to, I, to continue pursuing this guy. Well, it didn't match. But, but once police get an idea of, of the perpetrator, it takes a lot to sway them from mm. that argument. Even if things come in in the meantime, they have a fix, fairly fixed idea. Once we've they seen think it before. Yep, yep. Yeah, we've all seen the cases time. Before. We saw yes. Laura yeah. Rainey. Mm. Once they decide that, anything else is superfluous. They don't Andrew even look Mark into Mallard. it. Mallard. Yep. Andrew Mallard spent more than a decade behind bars for a murder he did not commit in the mid-1990s. Not far from Claremont in the suburb of Mosman Park, artisan jewellery store owner Pamela Lawrence was left for dead by an intruder who had struck her on the head several times. Mr Mallard lived nearby and was known to be an odd and eccentric character in the area. During lengthy interviews with him, detectives allowed Mr Mallard to speculate about how the crime may have been committed and that so-called confession convinced a jury that the innocent man was guilty. It wasn't until 2006, when the High Court quashed the conviction, that Mr Mallard walked free from jail. His strongest advocates were lawyer and politician John Quigley, who is currently Western Australia's Attorney-General, and his Chief of Staff, former journalist Colleen Egan. It's worth noting that Mr Quigley has long called on police to apologise to Lance Williams and his family for wrongly pursuing him as the Claremont serial killer. The other case Alison Fan referred to involved barrister Lloyd Rainey, who police charged over the 2007 murder of his wife, Supreme Court Registrar Corin Rainey. In 2012, Mr Rainey was acquitted and won a $2.6 million defamation settlement against the WA police for labelling him during the case the prime and only suspect. Five years ago, it's hard to imagine, it's half a decade... Uh that Corin tragically died. It's been five years since Sarah and Caitlin have been without their mum. Three commissioners would head up WA Police before the 2016 breakthrough in the Claremont case came. Carlo Callahan, 
who handed over the reins to current top cop Chris Dawson in 2017, was the one who announced the arrest and charges against Bradley Robert Edwards. He believes Lance Williams, who died of cancer last year, and his family are owed an apology. Did you have a view before you became police commissioner on where the investigation was going? Well, I think like all of these types of investigations, before I got there, there were several reviews and there was recommendations on the table to do some things differently and to revisit some areas of the investigation. And so part of my job was to pick that up and to try and get a new set of eyes on it, a new team on it, and, and try to move the investigation along, pick up some of the recommendations that have been made. Because, you know, quite rightly, the community was saying, then after uh, something like six or seven or eight years, you know, how come you guys can't solve this? Why is it such a mystery? And, you know, one of the things that was tossed around, I think, by the police themselves was, you know, is this person still alive? Is this person still in Western Australia? Because things seemed to stop after 1998. Did you have a view on a person who the police had pursued, Lance Williams? Did you ask for a briefing around this man who had been such a focus of the police investigation yeah, yourself? Yeah, of course, we got, I got briefings on that. But the issue really is when you've got an investigative team on such a big case, who've got such a long history of working on it, you are sort of forced to accept their recommendations and their views about what the best investigative action was. And, you know, my main concern was to make sure that the team was adequately resourced, had the money to do what they needed to do, had enough staff to do it. And so that was a lot of what I was doing, was working on making sure they had the resources to carry on with the business. In 2004, did you have a sense that there could be a breakthrough, that there was something happening that might, you know, get the result? Well, I think we hope for that every day, and we thought every year there might be a breakthrough. Um, after a while, of course, it, because there's well, one of the issues with this is because there is such an interest by the public and the media, there are constantly pieces of new information coming in, and so there was always the capacity for a breakthrough on something that the police hadn't seen yet. And there was always questions about how long does this go for, how much resource do we put into it, but there was always then hope that we could find a way through this. It was such a big case and is in the psyche of everybody in Western Australia really that there was no chance of us ever you know, reducing resources or reducing allocations of money to the investigation. So did you decide to, that it needed a new set of eyes? What, what happened? Was there another review after you came in? Was there a cold case unit set up? There was a cold case unit, but I think the whole uh, issue of the Claremont serial killings was ha was sort of handled separately. To that. There was a number of different things going on inside the police at the time, including a revisiting of lots of DNA samples and exhibits which had been taken back in the 90s and early 2000s. That's an enormous process because of the sheer volume of material. Um, and I think one of the things that we discussed was that the answer is probably somewhere in one of those boxes, I know those thousands of boxes of material. So you, did you have a view, and I've heard it from others, that there was certainly a view in WA Police that the, the person that they were looking for may already be in the system, if you know what I mean. They may have already had some kind of conviction, may have been involved in some other offence, maybe a minor offence, but did you did you have that view as well, that they were probably somewhere there, you just had to find them? Well, I think some of the senior investigators had that view, and I think you know, I credit Michelle Fife, who was the Assistant Commissioner of Crime at the time, with actually finding the results for this by going back to material that had been in storage for a long, long time. And you have to, it's very difficult to explain to the public uh, what that actually means, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of exhibits in storage, you know, from those years, and they all have to be gone through 
to for cold case work. Uh, and so we knew that uh, we may get a result, but it would take a long time to do it. And you have to do these things methodically and you have to do them properly because one day, and it, it, it's turned out that way, this material will need to be used as evidence. Was there political pressure still in 2004, five when you came into the job? Was there no. pressure to get this, this sorted? I've never had a conversation with a minister that was uh, you know, responsible for police when I was commissioner uh, about the Claremont serial killings in terms of when are you going to resolve this. We've never had such a conversation. So I think I've been lucky in terms of ministers that they have largely kept their fingers out of police operations. Did you have any judgment after you've been in the job for a little while? Did you have any judgment around the whole idea that a particular person, a man by the name of Lance Williams, had been a suspect for so long, had been put under surveillance, had been put under media pressure? Mm, Did you mm. have a sense of that? Because I know the family... Of, of Lance Williams were getting to that point where they thought the police now needed to apologise to, to them and their son. What, what, did, what did you think about all that? Well, obviously, over time, as that sort of unravelled a bit and it turned out not to be Lance Williams at all, in my view, the decision was wrong, but it was based on good information at the time, I guess. Uh, and, um, you know, I think probably Lance Williams' family uh, do, do uh, deserve an apology for this, you know, because I think, you know... While the police were acting probably in what they thought were the best interests of the investigation, in the end, someone's life was very significantly affected by it. When this, for want of a better term, this kind of tunnel vision about a, about a suspect occurs, is it something that you know needs to be reviewed for the next time? Because we've had a couple of situations in WA. We had yeah. we had the Andrew Mark Mallard situation, yeah. and clearly. You know, he wasn't the right man for the crime. Mm. Then we had Lance Williams, who was heading down that path. He was never charged. But is that a, a fault? Is that a mistake of police? Is there some sort of issue with policing where they say he fits the bill, he's going to be the man that we're going to charge? Well, I think it's human nature, and it's easy for that to occur where you get a fixation on one particular suspect, and a lot of the evidence around that suspect seemed to fit the crime. Since all of those things have occurred, of course, there is a whole series of different levels of reviews that go on. So you get fresh pairs of eyes coming in and cross-questioning. In those days, you know, the, the, the investigators who were supposed to be the best investigators in police sort of went around unquestioned a little bit. Mm. The, uh, there was some independent reviews of, of this particular case, as you know, and there were people who came in from other states and overseas to have a look at that, and they legitimised a lot of what the investigators were doing, but they also raised some issues about other things that could be done. I mean, one of the things that people used to say was, well, this guy's been under surveillance for so often for so long now and nothing's happened. So, so yes. maybe the police a right to have gone down that path. Was that a thinking within the yep. police service in the mid-2000s? Well, that certainly was one view. As, as you said, that uh, while uh, Lance Williams was under review and under surveillance, there were no more crimes of, the, of that nature. Can you... We've got to go forward a bit now. Can you recall a time when someone said, we think we've got something? We think we've got something that's tangible that we actually can uh, pursue? Um, I, I certainly can recall a conversation like that, yeah. And without giving away perhaps the, the tone of the conversation, did it fill you with some hope, serious hope? Well, of course, one of the questions that I put to them was, you know, is this just another view or is this based on, you know, some more evidence, some, some um, solid evidence? And, uh, and so I guess after that conversation, uh, I was a bit more comforted by the way the investigation was going. And was that 
can you recall whether that was around 2014 15 or yeah. was it was it yeah so it was it was, it was a was, couple of years prior to a charge being charges being laid yes i mean it's a, it's a long a long process and it's a painstaking process obviously but it was certainly um, i can't remember the exact time but it was certainly now where are we now 2019 so it would be four or five years ago can you also recall then the moment when you're sitting there with some of your senior officers and you you've made a decision to announce to the public that you've made a breakthrough. Mm. What what was going through your mind and, and the minds of your senior officers? I mean, that must have been a, a fairly intense moment to know that you're about to go out publicly and say that we have arrested and charged someone. Well, it's uh, I mean, it's intense. And uh, bear in mind that the families had to be notified that we were going to make such an announcement. So that had to be done so that everybody who is affected by this directly is in the loop, so to speak. You know, obviously that we were pleased to be able to announce it, but certainly um, I think it's the families we were working for. Uh, and f from my perspective, uh, and I've said this before, it was a highlight of my time as police commissioner to be able to announce that we have charged a person with, with the killings. Detectives from the Special Crime Squad have charged a 48-year-old Kudal man with the murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon and attacks on two other young women, a 17-year-old in Claremont in 1995 and an 18-year-old in Huntingdale in 1988. The man was arrested at his Kewdale home yesterday and charged in the early hours of this morning. It will be alleged the man abducted 23-year-old Miss Rimmer in the early hours of June the 9th, 1996, after she'd had a night out with friends in Claremont. Her body was later discovered in Wellard on August the 3rd, 1996. Police will also allege he abducted 27-year-old Miss Glennon on Friday, March the 14th, 1997, after she too had been out in Claremont. Miss Glennon's body was discovered in bushland off Pippadini Road in Eglinton on April the 3rd, 1997. I should point out that the investigation into the disappearance and suspected murder of Sarah Spears on January the 27th, 1996 is ongoing, as are inquiries into other matters. So there is still much work to be done, but this has already been the biggest and most complex police investigation in WA history. Hundreds of police officers have worked on this case over the past 20 years. Operation Macro has been a massive body of work involving thousands and thousands of investigative actions. The commitment of the WA police and its officers have never wavered. We never give up. Was it down to technology? Was this sort of the advancements with DNA, did it just make this much more possible to get to the point where we're at now? Well, I think it was both technology and what I would call good basic detective work in the end. And, you know, the detectives who worked on this and their names will emerge in time uh, certainly deserve the, the uh, credit for what's happened here. In the next episode of Claremont the Podcast, the West Australian Newspaper's legal affairs editor, Tim Clark, will take you in detail through the allegations already before the Supreme Court 
in relation to the man who will face trial in July, charged with being the Claremont serial killer. The size of the case, the breadth of the case, means the actual size of the trial and the breadth of the trial is going to be unprecedented in this state. This podcast was written by me, Gary Adsed, produced by Clarissa Phillips, recorded in the studios of Red Wave Media and made possible by the archived resources of Seven News Perth and the West Australian.